In this season, as in the life of our church, we are focusing on what is the core mission of, of our church, and really what it ought to be the core mission of every church. And here it is. Here's the question that is posed. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus? Jesus asks two things of his disciples. First of all, he says, I want you to turn around. Remember, what's the word for that? Repent. Metanoia. Very good. Very good. Someone's paid attention to the Greek. Jesus says, whatever the way is that you're walking, I want you to stop and turn around. That is the starting point for Christian pilgrimage. Stop, turn around. Then where do we walk? He says, come and follow me. The first half of of this call is a, a call to stop the direction you're going, turn around, and come and follow Jesus. But that's not where it stops. Our Christian faith is not just all about me and Jesus, despite what our American Christian culture seems to suggest. If you you pay attention to a lot that's out there in the Christian blogosphere, it is all about me and Jesus. But, But that is not the case. That's not what Jesus tells us, because there's a second half. He says, turn around, follow me, and then when you have done so, I want you to go and make disciples. It's the second half. Go and make disciples like you have learned from me. So really, turn, follow, go, make. Those are the the four points of Christian faith. Turn, follow, go, and make. That is the rhythm of true Christian discipleship. Last week we heard the apostles, Paul's definition of what it means to be this kind of a disciple. He offers it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And really, when we heard those first two words, it's kind of audacious, isn't it? I mean, who would have the hotspot to say, Imitate me. Do like I do. It, it can be a little off-putting, and if we're supposed to do that, it can be very nervous-making, because who wants to say that? But if you put these two together... It goes like this. Look, I am trying to imitate Christ. I want to follow Jesus. I want to live the way Jesus teaches me to do. And as I'm learning to do that, would you like to come along with me? Would you come and imitate me as I learn what it means to imitate Christ? It is a wonderful definition. It's a definition we're going to continue to to use for our understanding of discipleship. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. A, A disciple is one who dares to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Last week, our Sunday school class was studying this together. They always follow along our our preaching series. And one little girl, when she heard this, she said, Ah, it means we're supposed to be copycats. Yes, copycats of Jesus. That is exactly right. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. One of the babies that you saw baptized earlier, little Claire, you, you saw some emotion because it has been a very, uh, very hard time. Claire is the daughter of Duncan and Maya, and Maya's mama, Masako, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer while Maya was pregnant with Claire. And she lived for three weeks after Claire was born. So she got to see her new grandbaby, but then the Lord took her home. And so we talked together in a, a very emotional setting about how important Masako, this grandma, had been in the, the heritage, the Christian formation that Claire is, is going to be receiving. And And it was her son-in-law, Duncan, who had these things to say about her. Listen to this tribute. Duncan told me she loved Jesus so much. Her whole life was devoted to him. 
He was the most gent- she was the most gentle, quiet, peaceful person you ever met. And it all centered in her love for Christ. We found journal after journal filled with her prayers for us and for her friends. She worked at the child care center at Henderson Bay. She took care of the babies of teen parents. The, the kids that many of the world had, have written off. I've got this memorized. It's, it, it's so powerful to me. The, the, the kids that many of the world have written off, but they were precious to her. And it was amazing how many of these young people showed up at her funeral to express gratitude for her influence on their life. And then, Ma, then Masako's son-in-law offered this sweet tribute for his wife, her daughter. Maya's entire life is to emulate her mother. And that is very lucky for me. Masako imitated Christ. Maya is imitating her mom who imitated Christ. And Duncan and his family and the world are blessed by that. That is the call to Christian discipleship. The question then that is begging to be asked of each one of us is, are you a disciple worth imitating? Are you a disciple worth imitating? And what does it mean to be that kind of a disciple of Jesus? That's what we're in in this series. And to look more into this, we're going to turn back to really what was Jesus' manifesto of this new social revolution, this kingdom breaking in. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. So would you turn with me, please, and we're going to read together the next passage on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. You'll find it on page 818 in your pew Bibles, starting with verse 7. And here's what I want you to do as I read this. Would you watch for the verbs? Watch for the verbs. Here are the words of Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. So, actually the Greek word here, pay pay attention, is therefore, therefore in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, And narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, for whatever reason we are seated here together in in this gathering of our family. There are some who are here perhaps because family members were being baptized. There are others who are here perhaps because they were dragged here this morning against their wishes maybe. And there are some here who are just so eager to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, every one of us longs to hear from you. Longs to do more than listen to some guy talking. But longs instead to encounter Christ. Would you meet us by your Holy Spirit today? And would you make these words of mine, would you make them your words? So that they might have life. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. 
Amen. Last week I talked about the incredible gift of God's grace in Christ. This word grace, this this idea of grace, it is the great offering of the Christian faith to the world. We, We do not have to earn God's love. We don't have to do well enough, behave well enough to impress God. Rather, we discover... The, the, the story of salvation in the Bible is this, that God loved us first. God loved us deeply, and He saved us because He wanted to, and because we couldn't do it ourselves. If you want a summary of the gospel, there it is. God loved us first, God loved us deeply, and He saved us because He wanted to, and because we could not save ourselves. There's the Christian gospel. And that is the primary difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Listen to this. Every other faith is some variation of do-goodism. Every other one. If I behave myself, if I earn brownie points with God, then when I die, maybe I will go to heaven. If I'm good enough, or at least if I'm better than the average guy. But the gospel of Jesus says, you can never be good enough. You can never be good enough to earn God's love. But that's okay, because God loves you already. And he sent me to come and save you. And that is a free gift. That's the gospel of Jesus. And that is wonderful news, isn't it? For those who will receive that, who have have wondered, what in the world am I going to to discover that God actually loves us and has saved us by His own volition? That is great and wonderful news, this grace. But it is a gift that we can take for granted, and I think we do. When we presume upon God's grace, essentially we are saying this, since God has already saved me, I got my stamp, you know, the mark on the forehead, the stamp on the, since God has already saved me, I can go ahead and live whatever way I want to. Because I'm in. I got the eternal fire insurance policy. I'm good. So I can go about living any way I want to in this life. Honestly, is that your attitude? When you think about the grace of God, is that the way that you treat it? Hey, I'm in. God did it for me. I can live any old way I want to. And it's good because someday when I die, then I get to go to heaven and everything will be great. Do you remember what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was hung by the Nazis in the last moments of the war because of his faith? What he called that kind of attitude, do you remember? Cheap grace. Would you say it? Has there ever been a more horrible adjective Attached to a more wonderful noun, cheap grace. And Jesus underscores that when he talks to his disciples and tells them what real discipleship is all about. We heard this verse last week. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian, not everyone who who claims that I am their Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. So one of the discipleship myths that Jesus destroys in the Sermon on the Mount is this. A disciple can live in persistent disobedience. Jesus crushes that. A disciple can live in persistent disobedience. And Jesus says, no, you cannot. You cannot claim to be my disciple and persistently disobey me. And if you are persistently, unapologetically disobedient toward Jesus in the way you treat others, 
or in your sexual behavior, or in the way that you speak, or in how you spend or give your money. If you do not care how Jesus wants you to live in these very specific, very practical ways, then you don't really know what it means to be an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus. Furthermore, the evidence might suggest that you are, in fact, not a disciple of Jesus if this is your inclination. I don't care what Jesus said. I'm going to live my life my way. Disobedient disciple. The two words cannot go together. They are an oxymoron. Do you understand that? Disobedient disciple. They don't go together. Here are two other words that do not go together, according to Jesus. Passive disciple. Passive disciple. And that's what we learned today from this passage. These closing words in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sums it all up by basically saying this, that my disciples are not passive. They are active. They are persistent. They are tenacious. They seek to discover what my will is, and then they pursue it. They don't just sit back. They act. At a risk of dating myself and showing what a history nerd I really am, I'm going to ask this anyhow. Is anyone else in the room interested in watching the new Ken Burns film series on the Roosevelts? Anyone watching it? Oh, good. I'm not alone. It's a great series. And the very first episode of this series was about Teddy Roosevelt, one of the most colorful presidents to ever sit in the Oval Office. Teddy Roosevelt had this approach to life. He once wrote, get action. Weird words, but that's what he said. Get Action. Do things. Be sane. Don't fritter away your time. Create. Act. Take a place wherever you are and be somebody. Get action. I think Teddy would have loved this section of the Sermon on the Mount because this section is all about action. It is all verbs. Did you hear the words? What were the verbs? Tell me. You're letting me water myself. That's good. Well done. Ask, seek, knock, do, enter. All of those are action words. Verse 7. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Ever notice that all those three letters, ask, seek, knock, the first letters all add up to ask. Very cool. Ask, seek, knock. All action words. Actually, if you look at the Greek, the Greek actually it says it this way. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. It's not one off and you're done. You don't ask once and you're good to go. Jesus, I want you to just keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking on heaven's door. You hear the tenacity in that? The persistence in that? Jesus is saying, my heavenly Father wants you to pursue an ongoing, moment by moment, day by day, give and take relationship with him. My heavenly Father delights when he hears from you. He wants to hear from you. You never get old to him. People ask us how our son Cooper is doing in Whitworth. And our honest answer is, we think he's doing fine. <laughs> I, uh, the fact is, we, we hardly ever hear from him. And I'm sure we are the only parents who ever sent their kids off to college and had that to say. But apparently there's something in the Spokane water that paralyzes the dialing finger. Because he never calls, he rarely texts, 
Now listen, we are glad for his independence. We raised him to fly away. But we do enjoy those moments when he calls, when he texts, when he connects with us. Why? Because we love him. Because we love him. And so we love to hear from him. The disciples could not help but notice how tenaciously Jesus stayed connected with the Father. He pursued a relationship with Father. Think about this. This is the third, second person of the Trinity who's lived in relationship with the Heavenly Father forever, all of eternity. He comes down to earth, though, and here he pursues this relationship with his Heavenly Father. They watched as he prayed every morning throughout the day. They saw the intensity, the fervor with which he stayed in connection with God. And he taught his apprentices to do the same. God loves to hear from his children, and he invites us to do so tenaciously, to ask whatever we want of him. Anything you want, ask him. He's going to give you the stuff that's good for you, but ask away. Whatever you want, he says, go ahead and ask. To seek him in every part of our life's journey, to discover that he really does want us to pound on the doors of heaven until our knuckles are raw. I've been amazed by the way that cell phones have changed the culture of communication. When we were on the subways in Europe this summer, everybody was on their phone. You never even saw eyes. I'm not sure the French people have eyes because all I saw was this. All of the time, every time they were down communicating something with somebody. Technology has taught us that it's possible to 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 stay in constant communication with other people. Just imagine now if we took what we learned from that and we sanctified it. Just imagine if we learned that we could actually talk to God that way. Not once in the morning and then we're done for the day or once, even worse, once on a Sunday morning and we're done for the week. But throughout the day we communicate, we ask, we sink, we knock. And, it's, and this is the thing we've got to understand. Not just about spiritual stuff. Do you believe that God knows anything about the actual stuff that you're doing in life? Do you believe that if you've got his opinion on the matter, if you listen to his leading, you might make better decisions? And so if we think that, then we begin to learn to say before we make the deal, Lord, is this a good deal? Lord, should I hire this person? Lord, should I buy this car? Lord, I am so mad at this person, I hardly know what to do. Help me right now before I make a bad move. Lord, shall I speak to this stranger? The Apostle Paul wrote something that when you first read it, it seems outrageous and undoable. He says, pray without ceasing. Pray continually. But this summer, I began to ask the Lord to help me to understand what that looks like. I have been trying to practice the presence of the Lord since this summer. Talking to God throughout the day, musing upon Him throughout the day. It's one of the ways I use that scripture verse. Just by repeating it over and over again throughout the day. It reminds me of God's call upon my life, His presence there in my life. And that what I do matters to the kingdom. I talk to him as if he actually cares about everything I do and that he actually knows something about the decisions I make and I am trying harder to listen as he speaks back. Friday night I was at dinner at a restaurant. I saw a woman sitting nearby and I had a sense of stirring that I was supposed to speak to her. And I don't know how to explain that to you other than to say this is the remarkable thing. 
When you begin to invite the, the Lord to speak into your life, when you try to listen, you actually begin to feel prompted to do things. And so I saw this woman. I felt a, an urging of the Lord to speak to absolute stranger. I said, okay, here we go. And so I, and I started this conversation with this lady. Before long, she migrated from where she was to my table. And she began to tell me about how she had lost her husband recently. About how she had been dealing with that great loss of this guy that she loved and had cared for for the last three years. How she had moved to Gig Harbor to be closer to her children and to her grandchildren. And how she was trying to figure out what the next chapter of her life should be. I didn't hear God enter into this conversation at all, but there was just a sweetness of this connection with her. And a few times she asked me what I did. I told her. I invited her to church. I, I said, I'm going to pray for you. And I, and, I, and I blessed her. And she received that and said, I bless you too. And, and all of that because I, I'm trying to learn what it means to listen to the Lord and talk with the Lord. I'm hoping I'll get to a point where I'm so persistent in it that I'll become a pest to him. And he said, that's enough. But Jesus says, bring it on. The, the, the heavenly father cannot possibly hear enough from you. That's how precious you are to him. He loves you and he, he wants to do good things for you in response to your conversation with him, which sets us up for the, the context for Jesus, the most famous verse that Jesus ever spoke. We think of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's just kind of floating out there. It's actually right here at the end of this passage where he talks about the father who wants to do good things for his children who ask him, doesn't want to give them rocks, doesn't want to give them snakes, wants to give them good things. And then from there, Jesus says, therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Think about that. In other words, just like God who loves to respond with kindness to the children who ask him for things. You do the same with each other. And so he gives us this other wonderful action word. Do. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Imagine the power. Imagine the power if, if that was the most persistent question of my life in relationship with other people. Am I treating them the way I wish they would treat me? Jesus is saying, I want you to be actively, tenaciously kind to others. And he said, you want to know how important this is? Here it is. If you were to summarize all of the Old Testament, that's this much. If you were to summarize all of this, you can do it with what I just said. Do to others what you would have them do to you. That's, he says, how important this is. Can you imagine the difference in your life, in the lives of others, if every single person walked out of here just with this action in mind? I'm going to be kind, as kind to others as I hope they'll be kind to me. How would that transform our community? Because we chose to be kind. We chose to care for others in that way. It's all verbs. It's action. It's ask and seek and knock and do. And then Jesus throws out another verb. Enter. He says... Enter through the narrow gate to the narrow winding path. When we were in Oxford this summer, we were out walking near Christchurch in a beautiful walkway out there, and there were scores of other people with us. We had walked quite a while, and we decided that we wanted to get back towards the town. But we discovered there was only one way to get there, only one gate, and it was a very strange gate. You had to move the door of the gate, and then you had to step inside to what was like a big 
mouse cage. And then you had to do this, and you had to move the gate in the other direction, and then you could get out and walk down the narrow alley that led to town. Only one person could get there. It was very kind of, it was tight. In fact, I made the mistake of trying to to do it with a second person that I did not know, and it was way more familiar than I wanted to be with that English person. Way more familiar. The irony of it, I mean, that there is another way you could go. You could keep going on the wide gate, the wide pathway. Do you know what the name of the wide path is, ironically? The dead man's walk. Jesus said, listen, it's not easy going my path. It's easy to go the way of the world. But if you want life, you go, you take the narrow gate, you go the narrow way. Many people assume that this is a passage about doctrine. If you believe the right things, that's the narrow gate. If you believe the wrong things, that's the wide gate. But that doesn't explain the fact that there are many people, Jesus talks about them, who know everything that is right religiously, but they still don't belong to him. This is not about right doctrine or wrong doctrine. The narrow gate is simply this. It is following Jesus. The narrow gate is following Jesus. The wide path is living life your own way, doing whatever you want to do. Being a disciple of Jesus, being an apprentice of Jesus, is going to mean choosing again and again and again not to walk the easiest, widest pathway that everyone else around you might be taking. It's going to mean choosing, being a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus, it's going to mean choosing again and again to follow him on the less popular path because we trust that Jesus actually knows what he's doing. Do we believe that about him or not? Do we believe that Christ is Lord, the creator, and that he knows what is best? If we do, why in the world would we not want to follow him? If you were an apprentice bricklayer or an apprentice piano player and the master said, lay bricks this way or play scales this way, how stupid would you be to say, no thanks, I think I'll do it my way. And how surprised would you end up, would you be if you ended up being a lousy mason or a lousy musician? We are lousy Christian apprentices, disciples, when we refuse to say to Jesus, I trust you to lead me where I should go, even when it seems odd or hard. Jesus is telling us, it's not going to always be easy for my disciples. And when you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what he requires of us, you discover he means exactly that. When Jesus says that he wants you to love one another, love your enemies, be kind to your enemies, forgive one another, give generously. When he tells us these things that begin to impinge upon real life, that is not an easy way. Following Jesus means abandoning your desire to have your own way, be the master of your own life. And it means going His narrow but best way. And there's nothing about that that is easy. There's nothing about that that doesn't fly in the face of our culture. Everything is acceptable in our culture today. Except, by the way, saying that not everything is acceptable. That's not acceptable. Everything, every religion is equally good, except, of course, for the religion that dares to say not all religions are equal or good. 
It is hard to follow the narrow way of Jesus in our culture. As a matter of fact, the very word narrow is a harsh criticism, isn't it? He's so narrow. She's so narrow. Jesus says, I want some narrow people. I want people who are willing to be narrow and follow my way and not the world's way. The way of Jesus can cramp our style when the way of Jesus challenges us and says, you know what, you are snotty towards your husband and your kids. When the way of Jesus says, I want you to sell some of your possessions and give the money to the poor. When the way of Jesus says, you don't need to buy anything. You've got enough. Be content. When the way of Jesus says, do not live together before you get married, because that is not God's best for you, and I don't care what the world says. When the way of Jesus says, I want you to make the priority of being with your church family as high a priority as you do all of your hobbies and activities. Ah, that's when the gate narrows down and the road gets a little windy. And when the apprentice of Jesus has to decide, will I tenaciously choose the way of Jesus in everything I do, every time? I got an email Monday from a woman in this church whom I admire greatly. She was nervous about last week's message. She grew up in a denomination that was all about trying harder and being better. You ever been in that kind of a church? And she said, I never quite felt like I made it. And she cautioned me. She, she said, my last Sunday sermon scared her. She cautioned me, do not lay that same impossible burden on our church. And I could not agree more. If when you hear me say, be obedient as I did last week, or be tenacious as you hear me say today, if all you hear is moralizing, all you hear is you must try harder to please God, you must try harder to be a good Christian, then if that's all you hear, then she's right. It's a false message. But here's the deal. She once lived in a church culture that expected too much of her people, of its people. Expected a life of holiness and obedience that was born out of a fear of God who is impossible to please. And it was entirely dependent upon the effort of that poor disciple who was never quite sure whether they had made the cut, never quite sure whether they were going to be saved. That was her culture. That is not our culture. The American evangelical culture expects too little of its people. Ours is a culture where we expect to be a Christian without being a disciple. Expect to be saved without being obedient. And expect to grow without making any effort. Let me say that one more time. Ours is a culture where we expect to be a Christian without being a disciple. Expect to be saved without being obedient and expect to grow without any effort. I am not, not, not saying that by our efforts, by trying harder, by being tenacious and doing good, that we will earn a fickle God's favor and have a shot at salvation. But I am saying, and I am using the words of Jesus here, that those who really know Him, who really love Him, who really trust Him as Lord, really want to be his apprentice, they are going to be obedient and going to be tenacious in learning to live his way. Get action. That's Teddy Roosevelt's odd way of saying, live life, go after it. If that's what you're going to do, do it. And isn't that what Jesus says exactly? 
when he concludes with his Sermon on the Mount by saying, ask, seek, knock, do, enter. Get action. If you want to follow me, follow me. If you claim to be my apprentice, do the things I do. If you want to be my disciple, then live the way I live. Not to earn my love, you've already got it. But because my way of living is real life, and I want you to have real life. I want you, it's impossible to ask you to do all of these things. I want you to do one thing. I mean, if you leave, i got a whole list of things to do. It just adds to the burden. I don't want you to do that. I want you to take this and just reflect. One thing, what is one thing that the Lord Jesus might ask me as his apprentice to do? I want you to take a few seconds, and we're going to pray, and as the band plays, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dismiss. But just take a few seconds to, re, to think about and muse upon what you read here. And the question, what is one thing that Jesus would have me do as his disciple? Would you just do that now? Lord Jesus, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot earn your love. We cannot be good enough for you. But if you are our Lord, then surely we must want to follow you. Surely we must want to be your apprentice, your disciple. God, I would love it if you would stir every person here to say, I'm going to follow Jesus more faithfully. I'm going to put, I'm going to put action to my words, to my claims, and I'm going to follow Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord. Make us a church of disciples making disciples in Jesus' name. I give you my life, I give you my trust, Jesus. Before we close, I want to invite you to the table this Wednesday night. There was something precious, and we'd love to have you come and be a part of that at 6.30. We can't do any of the things we've talked about if the Holy Spirit won't do it in us. Otherwise, it really is all about gritting our teeth and trying harder we don't need another another try to do that but if the spirit is at work in you and you are feeling stirred by this then then I invite you to surrender and raise your hands and receive the blessing of God the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace and whatever you do whether in word or deed do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's disciples said, Amen.